and welcome to the uh, latest edition of the, the ORX podcast. Today, we're here to discuss work underway in the financial services industry around developing and, and implementing approaches to, to operational resilience and the challenges that organisations are facing when they're doing this. Part of the discussion today is going to particularly focus on some of the findings from one of our recent uh, published reviews, which is called Progressing Operational Resilience. And that's a report that's, that's just come out that's prepared based on sort of the activity and discussions at our member working group that focuses on operational resilience. And that's available on our website to, to all ORX members, whether you're involved in the resilience working group or not. So before we get into any more detail, who's on the podcast today? We have myself, Steve Bishop. I head our risk management program. Uh, we have Luke Karavik, who's our Director of Research and Information. Then we have Melanie Lavallin, who is a Senior Manager and who is our Lead on Resilience. Hi, guys. Hi, Steve. Hi, Steve. Okay. So before we get into specifics, uh, for those that are unfamiliar, I just wanted to introduce the concept of operational resilience. I think, firstly, this is a, a really important risk management development in the financial services industry. And essentially, what it does is it provides a change of perspective on risk management. I think we're all aware that the risk environment, particularly the non-financial and operational risk environment, has become ever more complex in recent years. We've seen the increase in digitalization. We've seen the increase in risks such as cyber, third party. We've seen sort of the pandemic um, happen over the last sort of 18 months to two years. Uh, and there's an acceptance now that these types of events are going to happen and they are going to be complex in terms of how they're resolved. Uh, and really what that means is for operational resilience, it's about accepting that if one of these events does happen, the key is how as an organisation do you respond? How can you ensure that you remain resilient as an organisation and having the required processes and controls in place to really give yourself the best chance at, at sort of managing to, to maintain resiliency. And, and I think the other important factor is that sort of historically, a lot of the focus for, for risk management has been about protecting the, the financial stability or the financial resilience or, of an individual organisation. But one of the concepts that operational resilience brings in is really thinking more, more broadly and thinking about the market that you operate in, thinking about the customers that you service and, and need to protect as well. So, so I think we're, we're seeing a big shift in, in, in the thought process around uh, risk management here. To accompany this, we've seen regulatory developments. We have seen the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision set out principles for operational resilience. Uh, we saw the UK regulators really go first on this. And unsurprisingly, we've seen the US and, and other countries following suit. And it really is, has become a, a global risk management priority. Understandably, we've done some work to support our members over the last sort of 12 to 15 months. We've been running a, a working group for members. We've also undertaken some studies to help sort of share best practice and, and really to support the industry to, to develop further. I'm going to sort of pause there. And really what we want to do is before we get into the, the sort of detail of the findings of the report in our discussion today, wanted to sort of do a little bit more to sort of set the scene in terms of where is the industry at with sort of implementing operational resilience requirements? What are their sort of key priorities at the moment? 
guys, I guess, who'd like to have a go and give us that overview? Thanks, Steve. Yeah, I'm happy to take that to start with. So from the working group discussions we've been having with our members over the last sort of 12 to 18 months, it's perhaps not surprising to to hear from them that they're all at different stages of the journey, in particular as they respond to their different regulatory requirements that they're seeing in their jurisdictions. But what we are seeing for those members who have operations in the UK, so the UK Active Bank and Insurers, most of those have already embarked on piloting their approaches to establishing operational resilience. So the the different component parts that we've seen in the Bank of England paper, where people are expected to identify their important business services, set impact tolerances, and actually test those. So for the majority of the UK active members, they're already on that journey. Whereas for others across the globe, what we're seeing is that they are still identifying their critical and important business services. And I really can't underestimate the the challenge that that is, but we'll cover that off in in more detail in in a bit. Perhaps, Luke, if you'd like to add anything to that. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Melanie. I'll I'll try and step back and give a higher level perspective that hopefully complements what Melanie said. Just starting with the regulators that that Steve talked about briefly, um, resilience is a concept that's been around for a long time. It was given that very specific regulatory focus several years ago within the UK, and that focus had been building um, before the pandemic. And I think it's probably fair to say that the pandemic has just accelerated things significantly. People have said that about an awful lot of things, not just things in banking, about the wider world, but this is a very specific example of where I, I think it's very true. The pandemic was a real test of resilience, real people resilience, which really wasn't the focus uh, that regulators had prior to the pandemic. They were thinking more uh, around a kind of shock coming from cyber, for example. And the reason for that was, I think, the acknowledgement that as we become more digital, there is less contingency than there used to be in finance. There are more kind of single points of failure. If your phone goes down, you can't do very much these days. So that was really where they were coming from. But I think COVID probably showed everyone that actually thinking in resiliency terms is a really sensible thing to do. So that, I think, has has accelerated things, accelerated the buy-in to it, as well as the kind of regulatory focus. But there are some really um, crucial challenges, which we'll go into in a minute, particularly around kind of structural challenges how does resiliency fit in with operational risk, business continuity, other things that are going on in our banks and insurers? And then aside that, there is this fundamental shift in, in thinking. You're thinking about things in a, in a subtly different way to you would do um, for risk management. So that kind of structural challenge and the, the shift in thinking are, are two of the key things we'll probably move on to talk about next. Cool. Thank you very much, both. You're absolutely right there. I think it's worth us now turning to to some of the sort of key hurdles that, that we've identified in the report that we've just published. And re- really, this report was designed to summarise a lot of the work that's taken place at, at the working group over the last sort of particularly six to eight months. And I think one of the biggest, uh, I guess, hurdles that people are thinking about at the moment is around the cultural change that this brings um, within an organisation. Melanie, in terms of your, your conversations that you've had, what, what sort of are you seeing as the sort of challenges and how are people sort of progressing in terms of overcoming the sort of cultural cultural challenges? 
I'm not entirely sure that anybody's actually overcome them yet, Steve. <laughs> but uh, resilience is is obviously the focus, and that mindset shift is is key. Most people are calling out that this is not just a mindset shift; it's transformational for organisations. So that cultural shift is taking people away from years of, certainly in the finance industry, having the traditional functional business unit risk view to now be considering end-to-end service views, which is something they've never been required to do before. It also begs the, the question of who owns these services. So again, traditionally, it's probably easier to find a, an individual risk owner But where you have an end-to-end service, which will span multiple risks, where do you place that ownership and accountability? It's also been discussed that getting the, the strong sponsorship from senior leaders, so the right tone from the top, is absolutely key in getting that right level of engagement and buy-in. So the mindset shift is creating challenges as I say, I don't think anybody's necessarily overcome it yet. Still looking at how do we establish that relationship between operational resilience and other activities within the organisation, as you say, such as operational risk, business continuity, um, other people that may have been involved in setting risk appetite or business impact assessments. So the, the real challenge is how do you do that without creating more silos? Steve, any other thoughts? Yeah, no, I was going to pick up on that point. I think that it's very clear from, from many of the discussions that we've had that this operational risk versus operational resilience concept is, is something people really need to think about. The regulators are all pretty clear that they see operational resilience as, a, as an outcome of, of successful operational risk management. And I think that's really important. There's obviously still a lot of activity required, new processes and new ways of thinking required to to sort of implement processes to enable you to be operationally resilient. But it's really important that that activity isn't undertaken on on a silo basis. And I think across the industry, we're seeing real efforts to make sure that 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 doesn't happen. So not to get sort of treated as a completely separate part of the risk framework. That's sort of, I guess, sort of leading to, to sort of a number of things. So, yes, teams are being required to be sort of set up to help implement the requirements. But in many cases, they're working very closely with their operational risk colleagues to look to try and adapt and leverage the processes that they already have in place for operational risk management. And that might mean sort of changing the lens slightly on how they're thinking about things, but very much looking to try and drive forward an an integrated approach. That's really, really something that's seen as pretty important, but sort of does have implications for the governance and and the organisation within a company. Um, no, it's it's a very good point. I think one of the one of the most challenging aspects about resilience is that kind of horizontal view that it necessarily takes across your organisation. There there are very few things that you would consider a critical service which really happen in silo. So there is always going to be things that cut across different functional areas. That brings that question about ownership into play. So who really owns um, something that cuts across horizontally? 
And it really goes against quite a lot of the stuff that people have been doing for many years. So a lot of risk management is focused in a vertical. A lot of the kind of risk management practices are are similarly focused in that way. So when you do risk and control self-assessments, you're taking quite a siloed vertical view, which you then roll up along the risk dimension. If you've ever tried to uh, have a process view of things or end-to-end customer journey, you will know how challenging it is because you're kind of cutting across various people in the organizations, various uh, functional boundaries. All of that together just, just brings huge challenges. It changes the way that people have to think about risks, controls, ownership, cutting across those functional boundaries. I think that also brings opportunities as well. Given the challenge, it's an area where people are keen to collaborate, come together, uh, discuss how they're uh, overcoming some of these challenges and maybe some opportunities for some consistency across the industry as well. I'd completely, completely agree with that, that Luke. I want to sort of get on to talk a little bit more about some of the sort of activities required for for operational resilience. But before we do that, I, I was just going to make a, a sort of point, I guess, around the regulatory or regulator maybe challenge of operational resilience itself. As I mentioned in, in the introduction, there's been lots of regulatory developments in this space, including the BCBS and, and lots of sort of national regulators making progress. And I think we see it as a very positive sign that there is generally overall alignment between the regulators as, as well. Albeit there are some, some regional differences. Many of our members are large global organisations that span many jurisdictions. And obviously where there are subtle differences in this regulation, that, that can prove challenging for them. Now we can talk about an example of that. So, so UK regulators expect uh, firms that they regulate, so, so that's obviously UK-based firms, but also firms that are, are active in the UK, they require them to take an end-to-end service-orientated approach to thinking about operational resilience. Other regulators are being far more flexible and setting out more sort of guiding principles that require sort of less, uh, I guess, structural developments or specific developments. Uh, and I think as other countries formulate their operational resilience expectations, firms are sort of looking to establish whether they want to take a, an enterprise level or global approach to how they manage resilience or whether they need to think about local nuances. It'd be fair enough to say that in our discussions, we've seen many organisations testing and developing their operational resilience, maybe in a particular region or, or maybe at the, the group or corporate level, with a view to then rolling out that approach globally and accepting there's going to need to be some adaptation in in places. But it seems to be the consensus is to take that global approach, but maybe to pilot it in a jurisdiction. I think the flip side of that is if countries develop their own approaches within an organisation, you could end up with sort of fragmentation and conflict. And I think that's particularly relevant. Um, We all see with many sort of global financial services organisations Services are provided and span business units and span jurisdictions as well. And I think that's also at the back of people's minds when they're thinking about their, their approach design, the sort of central versus um, sort of fragmented. I think we've probably covered the sort of what I would maybe describe as macro challenges that we've heard discussed and that we've worked on with the working group. Melanie, one of the things that you mentioned earlier, I think, is around sort of critical business services and impact tolerances. It'd be useful to sort of get the latest on on that front, if that's okay. Yeah, not a problem at all. 
the biggest challenge for everybody seems to be uh, identifying those critically important business services. So not surprising, you go to one area of the business and they will deem their service to be the most important, go to another and it will be theirs. Members have definitely said engaging as many stakeholders as possible in identifying those services is absolutely key. Getting their buy-in to understand what is the most important critical business service that is most likely to create harm to either your organisation, your customers, or as Steve said previously, the wider market. If those services are disrupted, you want to be able to understand what is the point of harm at which that disruption is most likely to cause the biggest disruption. So whilst we talk about important business services, there are very clearly, having had conversations with members, there's no one size fits all. There's no one view that can be rolled out across the industry as a generic template. So what is important to one organisation is going to be quite different to another organisation. When we carried out the survey towards the end of last year, we asked people to tell us roughly how many important business services they were actually identifying. And it ranged from fewer than 10 to more than 100. So just in in that space alone, you can see that there is a vast degree of difference in how people are approaching this. If you think about taking hundreds of important business services to your board and asking your board to sign off on them, they'll probably say, which are the 10 most key? Which are the 10 most critical? So bearing in mind that all of these have to be tested, all of these have to have impact tolerances set, it seems to be that the middle road, perhaps between 25 to 75 seems to be where people are positioning this, but that isn't a given, as I say, depends on the business. The level at which they set these is a real challenge. How do you know that you've gone granular enough to be able to identify that explicit point of harm and that you haven't left it too high where you'll never reach that, identifying that point of harm? Many of our members are starting top down. So going with their the product ranges, looking at where they have internal services that support those. So perhaps payment services that cuts across multiple products might be deemed a critical and important business service. But understanding where that particular service cuts across the business, as we've already said, that end-to-end view is a, a big shift for the business to get their head around. Once they've identified those important critical business services, they then need to think about setting impact tolerances. And this is defining the maximum tolerable level of disruption that could occur for a specific service. So this will have multiple metrics that are applied to it. The UK regulator expects to see as a minimum what is the maximum time of disruption that you could tolerate before you hit that point of harm. So before it harms your customers, your business or the market. So although there are time duration metrics which should be set if you're having to comply with the UK regulators, most regulators are taking a more flexible approach and saying that they should also consider things such as the percent of impacted customers, perhaps even the time of day or the time of the year 
So if it was a service which only operated perhaps nine till five, but got disrupted in the middle of the night, then that would have a different type of impact tolerance set to it. It's also, I suppose, not surprising. Um, a lot of people, when looking at their impact tolerances, have started with their risk appetite statements. Although many of our working group members have said they've started at that point, they've quite quickly moved away. The reason being, as we've said at the outset, looking at operational resilience, you're not looking at the likelihood of it occurring because it's a given it will occur. So looking at likelihood and cause, uh, not particularly helpful for setting impact tolerances for important business services. Looking at that end-to-end, cutting across the multiple functions and the multiple risks and thinking about it will happen. Again, a real change in mindset. So they're looking at impact tolerances, which need to be unique in nature. They need to write impact tolerance statements in the same way they would do risk appetite statements. But members are also questioning how do they get a dollar value measuring the cost of the impact of the disruption? And that's something that they're keen to try and establish so they can start looking at peer benchmarking. They're also looking at where they span across different business functions and entities and the jurisdictions. So if you happen to have one service which is only operated in one jurisdiction, you're more likely to be able to join the dots and get those impact tolerances set at the right level. Those systematically important resources or processes are also really key to identify when you look at your important business services. So where are your interdependencies upstream, downstream? What are those internal systems that you operate that actually support more than one of your important business services? So I think it's fair to say, Steve, at this stage, for the majority of our members, they are still looking at what all of this means to them. They're still identifying how to articulate that so their board will understand and then how they actually pilot those services. That's pretty good. I was about to say it sounds uh, pretty straightforward, clearly, in terms (laughs) of uh, the work they've they've got to do. I I guess on a serious note, lots of the, the discussion that we've been party to so far shows that the sort of focus has been very much working through that that sort of definition um, phase, looking, you know, identifying, getting approved their, their critical business services, working on their, their impact tolerances. And I think it's probably fair to say that those that are further ahead in their, their thinking are, are beginning to now look at their sort of scenarios that they're using and, and scenarios are being thought about as sort of one of the key tools, if you like, to help us to test operational resilience uh, processes Luke, I guess it'd be good to get your thoughts on whether people are picking up their operational risk scenarios to do this, or are they doing something different? Yeah, sure, sure. Really good question, Steve. I think um, I'll come at this both from the position of individual scenarios and and the kind of scenario framework, which is really the conceptual way that people create those scenarios. And I'll, I'll compare it really to scenarios primarily from uh, an AMA capital perspective. So I know that that many people use scenarios for other purposes, but really just comparing them to that because I think it's the most extreme 
comparison we can make. So, so you can question the original need. Why were those scenarios developed in the first place um, for capital purposes? And you see a real big change in scope when you do that. So the motivation back then was often to fill gaps in internal experience. So you didn't necessarily have good examples of an event. So you created a scenario to fill those gaps. And it could have been because you just haven't experienced one, or maybe you're launching a new product or entering a new business. So you need to create some scenarios to understand what your exposures are. And those would then feed through to some kind of capital model. So that is very, very different to the motivation for using them for resilience, which is really um, coming up with scenarios that road test the uh, impact tolerances that you've come up with for your critical services. So the the question is different at the start, the kind of scope. The the specific question is also different for resilience. It's, It's much more like a reverse stress test. You're assuming that something will happen and you're kind of working backwards um, from that. I, I think the frameworks may well be good, whether the individual scenarios are uh, perhaps in some cases, but I think the, that that nature of the question changing has some quite profound implications probably on, on how people go about creating these scenarios. So just on a, on a kind of subtle level, changing the question for, from when, not if, so it, it is going to happen rather than uh, give me an extreme example of something that has happened. Much of the machinery of the scenario framework is really designed to provide some objectivity and mitigate bias throughout the process. So you're trying to come up with a reasonable estimate of, of an extreme thing that you can then objectively lay out and, and, and show that you've mitigated biases successfully. So there was a big focus for capital scenarios on the knowledge really that you were trying to get to quite a large number at some point, which could have an impact on your capital. So that undoubtedly kind of skewed the framework towards mitigating that significantly. I think the bias moves when you're talking about resilience. I think one of the uh, biases we'll probably see, and this isn't necessarily something that people have articulated yet, um, in the early days is is an availability bias. So as people begin to think about things in a different way, do they actually have enough experience and examples to draw upon to come up with good scenarios that really test those impact tolerances and don't kind of under or, or overestimate their position on something? And I think that's really where that uh, external perspective can can prove very helpful when people are kind of feeling their way into a particular topic, everyone is learning at the same time. So actually sharing scenarios that really test the impact tolerances is, is possibly something that the industry might start doing um, as a consequence. There's a word of caution in here from the regulatory point of view. We, we've heard before in previous uh, things where, where they talking about stress testing, for example, where they say just, just reuse what you've done for, for a previous purpose. In this case, it was capital models. So the concept that you're just reusing something is, is probably not realistic because over time you realise that actually what you're being asked to do is, is a bit different and you have to refresh things. In summary, I would say I think there are good components of the scenario framework which will persist. There will be some changes that need to be made, particularly around that bias mitigation, because you're changing the question significantly enough that the process will have to change. And as for the specific scenarios, it it really depends. Um, I think some cases may be relevant, others um, not so relevant. Completely agree with that. And I think that 
what we're seeing is that people are sort of trying to see what from their existing scenario frameworks they, they can leverage, but maybe as a minimum, trying to make sure that timing is joined up, that, that thinking is joined up so, so that the business is not seeing sort of two separate siloed process. So I think that's the, the sort of minimum that, that we're hearing is trying to be achieved and then looking at potentially how, how can existing scenario frameworks be, be adapted to sort of meet those requirements that Luke uh, set out. But I guess the final challenge that, and, and I'd say it's the last, but definitely not the least challenge that, that people are looking at and thinking about at the moment, and I think this is particularly in light of experiences that we've sort of previously talked about through the pandemic, is how they're thinking about the third parties that they engage to support many of their sort of core processes and, and services. Melanie, it'd be good if you could sort of cover what the sort of latest latest discussions on this point are. Yeah, I was just going to actually also say on the, the scenario side where people have started writing and building these scenarios for testing operational resilience, what they're actually finding is as they map their services, which is a requirement, the mapping naturally lends itself to those stories. So when they map their services, they need to think about things such as the tools, the processes, the people, but also the third parties. So across that end-to-end service, where do your third parties operate? Which part of the service do they actually process for you? If they are processing the point at which harm can occur, the challenge is really getting better understanding of your third party's own operational resilience and how do you play that into your scenario testing? How do you ensure that you've identified all of those within your mapping? The mapping of these services is providing real value. People are identifying concentration risks where perhaps they didn't know they had them in particular with third parties. So where a third party may be supporting multiple services, that visibility for some wasn't there. So those gaining the assurance of the operational resilience in your third party um, supply chain is a real challenge and people are still working through what that might look like and how do they test that as part of their scenario testing. So where there is that growing reliance on third parties and also where they've further subcontracted out, how do you get that assurance and how do you also test it? So no real answers there at the moment. People are working through that space, but it is one of the key challenges that they're calling out, Steve. Okay, great. Well, firstly, I'd like to say thank you very much to Melanie and Luke. In terms of sort of next steps at ORX, we will be continuing to operate the working group that we have. That is open to to all members. So if you're not involved, and and a good percentage of you are involved, but if you're not involved, then please do let us know and and we can get you uh, hooked into the next meetings. The topics that we cover are proposed by members. Members often present their approaches or questions that they have and there's lots and lots of discussion about practice and how to take things forward. On top of that we're also continuing to work with with that group to think about what more can we do to help members share experience and practice as the industry develops its approach and we're also looking at the moment about whether there might be opportunities for the group to share data and and that's really driving at sort of trying to create some 
external data sets and reference points for people to think about when they're looking to either test their scenarios or thinking about trying to learn from the experience of others and get into that cycle of ongoing improvement with their operational resilience approach. So lots of work, lots of things that people can get involved in. If you would like to get in touch, you can visit the ORX website, which is ORX.org. You can access the materials there if you're a member. If you're not a member, then you can also get in touch with us through that uh, website, either on the topic of resilience or for any of our other services. With that, I will say thank you very much for listening today.